0: Alright, welcome back to another episode of A-Sides. Today's guest is the author of a book by the name of They Just Seem a Little Weird. And this book tells the story of four bands, Aerosmith, Kiss, Cheap Trick, and Stars. And we get into a little bit of what this book is all about, and chat a little bit about what fans we are of all four bands. So, without further ado... Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Doug Broad surrender, surrender, hey. So yeah, man, thanks for taking the time to do this and be on sure. the show I really, uh, I really enjoyed your book So the name of the book is uh, They Just Seem a Little Weird I said that right, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean it's the lyric from the song, but for some reason, every time I mention it to somebody, I want to screw it up.
1: It's funny because people I've spoken to have said they just seem a little bit weird. They always add the bit. Yeah. But I think they get that from in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. That's the that's the lyric they use, and people, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Oh yeah. Yeah, but when that guy's selling the tickets and he's talking about cheap trick he uses um, the phrase, just seem a little bit weird. So people have, it's kind of ingrained in a lot of people's heads. So you got it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I actually, yeah, I tried to, uh, it sounds kind of ridiculous, I guess, but I was like rehearsing it in my head because I didn't want to screw up the name of your book. And it's like (laughs) a song you hear a million times, but then it seems like every time I'd go to tell somebody about it, I would somehow change it. I don't even remember now. I can't even think of how I was saying it, but,
1: right, you know, right.
0: thank God I got that out of my system, I guess. But, yeah, man, so, first of all, I really enjoyed the book. Um, it was just a ton of, I guess, the first thing I, I would say as a recommendation to anybody that will pick it up and read it, I did the audio book, and so I was listening to it while I was at work and stuff, and There's a lot of information in there, you know, and a lot of different bands and a lot of different, uh, interviews you did. And I guess I would suggest anyone listening to this that wants to go out and read the book after they hear all about it, getting a physical copy and sitting down and reading it, um, you know, unless you're just sitting there listening to the audiobook and that's all you're concentrating on. But, you know, I was kind of having to rewind quite a bit like, oh, man, I'm, I'm missing something here. So now I've, I've listened to it all, but I still want to go back and get a physical copy and sit down and actually read it, you
1: know? Yeah, people 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 have told me it's very dense and there's a lot of information and there's a lot of names to keep track of and you want to kind of go back and forth and reread stuff. I kind of get that. I mean, I didn't didn't intentionally make it dense, but I wanted to pack a lot of information in there.
0: Right. Well, it's there.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, the good
0: thing is like, I I think most people they are fans of these bands and stuff, you know, they're going to, they're going to be able to keep up for the most part. Um, you know, there's some obvious characters that come in there where it's like, uh, I'm not 100% familiar with them. And obviously, yeah. Stars is kind of like the bastard child in the story in a way. Like, a lot of people, I don't think, are obviously going to be as familiar with Stars as Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, Kiss, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, I somebody just tried turning me on to them just like two years ago. Maybe not even that long. Uh, at a record store, a buddy of mine picked up a copy of their first album. was like, Hey, you should buy this. I think you'd really like it. I bought it. I did really like it. But then for some reason I haven't really gone back to it much. And I didn't check out any of their other stuff until I read your book. And then it kind of got me going into more of their catalog. Mm -hmm. And now I really want to find a copy of violation on vinyl, (laughs) (laughs) but that's actually kind of hard to do. I found, and or is it at least oh. really expensive if you want to pick up a good copy of it? So,
1: yeah, that's 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 a problem with like obscure records from the 70s. Either it's feast or famine, you can go to like any used store and find the same records over and over, but then you just there's just some that just never pop up. So,
0: yeah, yeah, very true. It's like right now they're reissuing it seems like everything, but then you come across that one oddball thing, like a stars record and you can't find it anywhere and nobody's reissuing it and but you know it probably will get a reissue i imagine at least those first 3 records i would think would get a I hope
1: so you know those guys deserve it
0: <laughs> yeah i you know i was really yeah i was bummed that i hadn't been listening to violation like prior to that cuz i think if that would have been the first album i heard of theirs i would have got it would have hooked me a little bit quicker you know
1: yeah. good record
0: but you know i guess going back to the book What was the initial inspiration? Well, I guess first I should probably say, since people listening to this might not know what we're talking about anyhow, uh, you know, have you talk a little bit about the book. Obviously, it's about Kiss, Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, and Stars kind of telling the story of all four bands and how their stories pretty much from beginning to end have all these different tie-ins and kind of parallels and it's you know a really unique story so i guess that sets it up but
1: <laughs> yeah. okay so what was the question Sorry. yeah no i
0: know i i kind of asked yeah. you to set it up and then i guess i kind of i guess i kind of did but um no i guess so i guess we can backtrack now to the original question um what was the initial inspiration for it? I know that the I think, if I remember correctly, the Gene Simmons album kind of played a part in it.
1: Yeah, the, the, the Gene Simmons solo album from 1978, when all four members of KISS uh, did solo records, um, that, that provided kind of the organic launching point for this book, although it's, it wasn't really the impetus for the book itself. I mean, I, I'd, always, I'd always wanted to write a book about 70s rock, and Cheap Trick has always been my favorite band, and I've always loved Kiss. Kiss was the first band that I fell in love with as a kid. Um, so I wanted to figure out an interesting way to tell a story of 70s rock that wasn't the, the story you've read about before. And, and I thought that looking in the back of the, the Gene Simmons record, I, I saw that Joe Perry played on it, uh, Richie Rano from Stars played on it, and Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick played on it so I thought it would be a really cool sort of launching point to sort of trace all of the the interrelationships between these bands and you know while doing the research I discovered there were a whole lot that I hadn't known going into the project so it was kind of like a it was an organic way to 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 jump off for the book but it was also kind of a a really kind of profound place where all of these bands merged. Right.
0: Yeah, and it's really really interesting because it seems like all the way back to the beginning of these bands starting off, there was so many connections. And, you know, all the way back to Kiss and Aerosmith, you know, there's the stories in the book about them playing some of their first shows together kiss opening for aerosmith i believe and the roadies pulling the knives on each other and whatever (laughs) you know
1: yeah it's funny because back then it was in 1974 kiss and aerosmith did two shows together and you know they were both really sort of just starting out i mean aerosmith were on their second record and kiss were on their first and kiss had really had rarely been outside of new york when they were playing with aerosmith once in maryland and a few weeks later in in detroit Um, and yes, yeah, so, and when Kiss were touring that early, they still had, you know, a rudimentary stage show. They still, you know, they, they had a drum they had a, a drum riser that that levitated that came off the stage. They had pyro. They had their costumes and their makeup, and they put on a show. And you know, Aerosmith's roadies didn't really want, you know. For Kiss to upstage their band they were very protective of their band so you know there were there were fights between the roadies at uh, both of the shows and at one at one point knives were drawn um, and the bands subsequently uh, never played together again until 2003 when they did a co-headlining tour
0: right yeah I remember that tour um, I didn't go to it but I remember it happening
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah it's and- funny at that at that tour Aerosmith again were the last band on uh, kiss played before Aerosmith even though it was considered a co headline tour and they had a sort of a, a rotation of, of younger smaller bands uh, opening up the the evening's performance
0: right yeah it's funny I think a lot of people have kind of been talking to about mm-hmm. going back to the I don't know what just happened upstairs. Sound sounded like a bomb went off. Jeez. <laughs> Anyhow, um, hopefully the mic didn't pick that up, or hopefully it did so people know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> I forgot what the hell I was going to say now. Oh, no, the the Richard Marks uh, interview recently with Paul Stanley, people have kind of been talking about that, just going back to the whole feud that's kind of always existed or whatever. And it was a really, you know, I, I'm sure you saw it, but...
1: Yeah. Yeah. For people who don't know what that's all about, um there was an interview with Paul Stanley that's on YouTube. I forgot who was interviewing him, but they asked him about uh, who his favorite singers were. And they said, Oh, there's gotta be that guy from the seventies. One of your peers who you must think is a great singer, Stephen Tyler. And then Paul kind of froze and he didn't, uh, he, he kind of, sputtered a little bit and changed the subject um yeah it was richard marx
0: is who was interviewing him
1: oh you're sorry richard yeah. Marks, of course of course yes um and and yeah so, so it, he kind of um paul was kind of like deer in the headlights he was caught off guard there and yeah um i guess richard had no idea um but yeah but that that just kind of plays into the fact that there are still residual um you know resentments, maybe, or you know, competitiveness between the bands. I mean, there was a lot of trash talking. Many years after they toured together in 2003, many years later, they were still trashing each other. You know, uh, in on radio and in interviews. So, yeah, the, there was there was a real competition there, and and that was one of the, the interesting things that I was able to sort of talk about in the book.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny. All these years later, you think that uh, you think that both bands would just kind of not give a shit anymore, being as big as both of them are and as old as they are. But it is kind of funny to see that because it's I don't know, I feel like some of that shit's healthy in rock and roll, you know, myself. Yeah, I mean, I mean,
1: it, it, it definitely it keeps it interesting. I mean, it, it first of all, it keeps these bands in the news. Um, or it kept him in the news back then when maybe things were, a little, were going a little slow. But, um, yeah, I mean, I just I, – I think it's all part of the game. And it's you – know, you know, and then again, these guys have known each other for, you know, going on like nearly 50 years. So it's – there's a long history there.
0: Right. Yeah, if they didn't like each other for the last 50 years, I don't think they're going to have some epiphany now where they change their minds, but – I wish that, I wish the little bit of competition would inspire Kiss and Aerosmith at least to maybe, you know, make a good record, a good current record. Um But the one Yeah, I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's
1: any interest there anymore. No. I mean, in fact, Paul said that there's, you know, there's no chance for another Kiss record, although, you know, new Cheap Trick, Cheap Trick yeah. record coming out um couple, like two weeks or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was gonna I say it. they're like the they're the uh, kind of black sheep as far as that goes because they're still putting out records and really their last few have been great. I mean,
1: yeah, that's one thing that, that about that band is that they, they never slow down. Um, they're always doing something. They're always touring, even now. They're, these guys are you know into their seventies and they're still touring, um, and they're still making really good records. I mean, I'm not sure the records are as good as they were in the you know, in the seventies, I mean, they haven't recorded another heaven tonight or dream police, but the records are still really, really good. And, you know, for another band that's been doing this for nearly 50 years, it's like more power to them that they're still making really good records.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's funny because I went back after reading this book it kind of sparked my interest back into the era of these bands that's kind of like my lesser favorites like I still bust into the 80s and you know late 80s early 90s cheap trick every once in a while or same with like Aerosmith and Kiss the Kiss 80s stuff it's like I got to be in the mood for it you know Um, but most the classic Kiss I could put on anytime you know anything rock and roll over before I could listen Mm -hmm. to any day of the week Um, but then animal lies, I got to like get in the mood for, you know,
1: that's funny because I mean, a lot of people I've spoken to during my interviews for the book. I mean, I've I've brought up the fact that I was one of those guys who, you know, I, I was into kiss early, like in 1974, 75. And I, my, my, my love for them was a very short window. I mean, I was all in until around, 1979 with dynasty. And then I kind of dropped off. Um, I didn't pay attention to them during the, you know, during the eighties really at all. I mean, I knew the singles when they pop up on MTV, but I never really bought the records. And I, I, I didn't really like, I I wasn't a big fan of the, the non makeup music. I thought it was a little generic and samey. Um, but I still kind of kept up with the singles, but then I, I jumped back on the kiss train when they put the makeup back on in 96. for the reunion shows with, uh, Peter and Ace, and that's when I was kind of all in again. And then, you know, the two records, the two most recent records, um, monster and sonic boom, I thought were, 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 two really strong records, um, much better than a lot of the, you know, the eighties output.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I actually liked some of, sonic boom but i can't say that i share the enthusiasm with monster i don't that one just kind of lost me you know i don't know maybe it's worth a second chance you know some of these i mean you know some of these records are like some of the cheap trick stuff it's funny because like doctor i was like no this is still just as bad (laughs) as i thought it was
1: the first wrong (laughs) wrong. that's something that i will go to my grave saying i the, the record is at first at first glance it's pretty unlistenable just because the production is so terrible yeah. and boomy. But some of the songs, if you, if, if you had Tom, Tom Worman producing some of those songs, it would be a really good cheap trick record. Wouldn't be great. But it'd be really good. Yeah. I <laughs> it's only just the production all wrong.
0: Yeah. I always just listen to it and it just comes off really messy to me. It seems like there's songs in there, but it's just messy. You know, okay. and that I guess that's just the thing I even given it another chance today mm-hmm. actually earlier today I was listening to it with my earbuds in and I was like I don't know you know you never <laughs> know though that. 10 years from now I might finally get it but then there were a couple albums where I was like oh man I kind of forgot that these were better than I thought like Standing on the Edge I actually really like that album Good just for some reason it's one I don't go back to as often as I should and every time I listen to it I think that you know um, yeah, I
1: think next position please has some of their best songs on it. Although that too, the production is like in the the opposite direction. It's it sounds to me really thin and right. trebly. Um, but the songs on that record are really great. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that's probably my second least favorite next to Doctor.
1: <laughs> well, we have very different tastes. Well, there's right? a, I'm sure
0: I'm sure we'd agree on some of our favorite ones. It's just I don't I don't know those two to me are kind of the uh, you know. And then I'd say Busted's actually kind of the surprising one that I kind of dig, you know, more every time I listen to it. And I know a lot of people don't share much enthusiasm in that. And I don't know if I would call my position on it enthusiasm, but there's you know, there's enough on there I enjoy to go back to it, I guess okay. I should say, but but then there's Woke Up with a Monster and I mean that one's a mess too, so with the, the exception I do, I, of a couple songs I do really like.
1: Yeah, I think the first side of that record is great. The second side is just blah. It's yeah. just like not happening. But um yeah, I mean it's it, it happens with these bands and and I talk about in the book how you know, at some point these bands in particular Cheap Trick kind of lose confidence and they, you know, and also, um, you know, Kiss and Aerosmith and they, they bring in collaborators, um, or they have collaborators in Cheap Trick's case forced upon them. Um, people like, you know, uh, Diane Warren, Desmond Child, um, you know, people, uh, people like that. And, um, a lot of these bands really resent that. In Cheap Trick's case, they they resented that. Um, and for Cheap Trick, it didn't really help. I mean, they did have their biggest ever single, The Flame, right. with a song that they didn't write, that they actually went kicking and screaming into recording, um, but that turned out to be their biggest hit. But it was still unable to put that band back at the sort of the higher echelon that they enjoyed, you know, when dream police came out, which was their kind of the the peak of their popularity. Um, they were never able to regain that. And I, and I talk about it in the book with, with regard to cheap trick. I mean, they, they only headlined arenas for a very short period of time. Um, and as soon as they started headlining arenas, they played it, they played Madison square garden in New York where I saw them for the first time in 19, 80. and um when they they came back to new york the next year they played radio city music hall which was you know a much much smaller venue um and i think in, in cheap tricks case is that if they were at their popularity that their the peak of their popularity and then tom peterson left the band or was right. fired from the band and they were never really able to recover from that, even when he came back into the band in the late 80s for a lap of luxury and busted.
0: Right, yeah, I remember you talking about that in the book and the loss of confidence, and, you know, it, it, you really kind of, I think, hit the nail on the head with that because it does make a lot of sense, and I've never quite maybe heard it worded that way before, but, yeah, I mean, it just seems like, you know, you you get the new guy in the band, you lose one of your core members and then you got to go out and be just as strong of a band and have the same output. And they definitely kind of didn't. I mean, once, you know, they put out, what was it? Uh, geez, one by one, right? One on one or one on one. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that one's another kind of dud. There's stuff I like on it, but you know, that one to me is kind of where it, there's definitely like that, dip in the overall quality when it comes to the songwriting production just, you know
1: Well, one thing that was interesting about Cheap Trick is that even though they lost a key band member the two replacements they hired all looked ex- they both look exactly like the guy they were replacing right. Um and even Otter um, was the first guy who replaced Tom Peterson this guy named Pete Comita Pete Comita ended up playing in a band with Tom Peterson after Pete Comito left the band. He was only in the band for a short period of time. He and he and Tom were in a band together in New York. Um, and then Tom went back to Cheap Trick um, and joined them on the Lap of Luxury record.
0: Right. Yeah, that is kind of funny. And I don't know if, if Cheap Trick's ever even addressed the fact that they hired two guys that you know what I mean the Tom Peterson look like I don't know if I've ever heard them talk about it now that I think <laughs> about it or but it's always been kind of funny like I think until I actually read your book I kind of wondered if I was the only one that picked up on that or if I just was imagining it or
1: well it's it's funny with with regard to Kiss I mean when Kiss there's this there's a real controversy about whether or not you know the Kiss that's touring today should be called Kiss because you have Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer sort of inhabiting characters that they did not create. In fact, you know, Tommy Thayer at some point during the Kiss shows now, um, he comes out and sings Beth. And he had nothing to do with Beth. Right. And, all you know... Eddie Trunk has a big problem with with that. And I I know there's a lot of Kiss diehards who have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with it. And and it's funny because Kiss were able to replace two of their main guys with new guys who just put on their makeup. And, you you know, at some point, you can't really tell the difference because they look the same. Um, You know, they may not play the same. Um, Tommy Thayer may not be kind of like as I guess sloppy as Ace was, I mean I love Ace Freely's guitar playing, but there, there's something really kind of engaging and compelling about the way he plays. He's kind of like his legs are all rubbery, and he he um, you know he has a kind of slight voice. His voice is not that great, but he just there's right. something really genuine about him. But now you see Tommy, you know Tommy Thayer playing with Kiss, and he's like technically he's really great but there's something missing You're missing the you're missing kind of the personality that that ace brought to the band even though tommy's wearing his costume and you know wearing his makeup so right.
0: yeah almost like too articulate you know when he plays i know what you mean because being a guitar player when you watch it it's definitely uh i mean i don't want to say it's distracting but Kind of for a minute, you know. I was <laughs> like, I've seen him with Tommy, and it kind of was at first, but then you know, really, it's such a show that twenty minutes into it, you don't really give a shit anymore. But
1: exactly. I mean, I've I've I saw Kiss twice, like right before the pandemic struck, and both times they were just they were terrific. They were really great, and I mean, for me, like I said, I it, I, I can't imagine. Peter and Ace up there because I don't think they could actually pull it off. I right. mean, Gene and Paul can still pull it off. People who are crying for Ace and Peter to be on stage, I just don't think they have the chops anymore to do it. So, you know, I, I don't know why people bellyache about that. It's KISS and it's, you know, it's the sh- it's, it's almost bigger than KISS. It's the show. It's the classic songs. It's the pyro. You know, they're, they're not like other bands. There's... They don't, uh, my belief is they don't need to be as authentic as a lot of other bands do. They, they get, I give them kind of a pass.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I get it. It's, you know, they're characters, you know, so you don't, I don't know. You're not really connected to Paul Stanley as a person when he's up there playing, you know. It's more like this flamboyant, engaging character, you know, and and Gene Simmons, and the whole demon thing. I mean, I mean they're all only going to be able to do it for so long before it's ridiculous anyhow. And obviously, they've both been pretty outspoken about having other keeping the Kiss legacy kind of going on when they retire and have other people, I guess. I don't know if they've come out and said it, but they're kind of insinuating that other people would come into the characters and keep the they, show on the road.
1: Yeah, they've talked about that. I mean, you know, Gene and Paula both said, you know... We, at some point maybe we'll just you know put out four guys with our makeup and have them play kiss i mean i don't know if anyone's going to i don't think anybody'd show up for that um right i think i think people are too savvy and i think that's there's something really it's it's funny to say this but it's like there's something really crass and commercialistic you know about that right. you know it just it's something something really like like just unseemly and that's something, that's a word that you don't really, you know, can't really use with KISS. But I don't know, there's, yeah, I, I wouldn't trust that. I, w- I wouldn't trust them sending out uh, sort of doppelgangers to do their music. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't no, care.
0: No, I wouldn't care either. I mean, it's kind of silly, obviously. It would turn into a, just a some kind of novelty act at that point, like a, you know, tribute act and whatever, but.
1: I think they may be half, they may be half serious, half joking. I'm, I'm just not sure that there's, there would be any, you know, audience for that. But who knows?
0: Who they knows? just want to brand their own tribute, their own bunch of tribute bands across the nation so that they can keep profiting off all the tribute acts after they're retired. <laughs> That's probably Maybe. what they're really working on. But yeah, the, uh, the stars band back to them, um, you know, I thought it was really cool and interesting, too. Their backstory, and I'm, I'm totally drawn a blank on what the name of the band was, but there was the band that they... Oh,
1: uh, Stars. Yeah, Stars started off... They, they had a really kind of deep history before they became Stars. Um, they started off as a band called Looking Glass that, was, that had a, yeah. a, a hit with, with Brandy or a Fine Girl, which was a huge number one pop single in 1972. Um, and they lasted for two albums um until they kind of morphed into another band called Fallen Angels and Fallen Angels actually recorded a record for Arista Records they were signed by Clive Davis um they recorded an album that was never released and you know that happens sometimes a band you know is signed to a major label they put out a single or two beforehand to kind of test the waters and that was that's what happened in the case of Fallen Angels Um, They put out a single, didn't do anything, so they just put the album on the shelf and kind of dropped the band. Well, the band um, added another guitarist, um, this guy Richie Rano, who had played in a band called Stories, which had a hit with Louie Louie. The song was called Brother Louie, not Louie Louie. Brother Louie. And um, so he joined... Fallen Angels, and then Fallen Angels were um, discovered, in a way, by um, Kiss's manager, um, Bill O'Coyne. The band was brought to him by his uh, lover, this guy named Sean Delaney, and Sean Delaney had a really heavy hand in the choreography and the stage show for Kiss, and he fell in love with stars, and he also had a heavy hand in creating their look in their stage show as well. So, yeah, so stars were, were an interesting band, especially for back then, because they were not a band that ever played clubs and bars, whereas Kit and, you know, cheap trick and Aerosmith all started off in, you know, the club and bar scene and had to really kind of work their way up. Stars were already, you know, the guys in stars are already in major bands. Um, when they got the gig, you know, to to be stars, right. so um, in a way they didn't they didn't pay dues. They 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 were they were very fortunate. I well, they paid dues earlier on, but as stars, they were very fortunate to be put on bills with like ZZ Top and Peter Frampton and Roxy Music right away. They were opening for bands in in arenas before they even had a record contract. So, and that was because you know, uh, Bill O'Coin had Kiss. And he used KISS as leverage to, you know, put stars over. So they had a very interesting, um, like, early days story that a lot of other bands didn't.
0: Yeah, and I remember that kind of being mentioned in the book, that a lot of people, and I don't remember if it was one of the various interviews, uh, but a lot of people believed that, you know, kind of some of the reason behind them not having quite the success and quite the longevity, you know, of success in their career was because they didn't pay their dues and they kind of didn't build that kind of cult following or whatever right out the gate, you know. And they just kind of jumped straight from being a brand new band to opening arenas. And
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of skepticism back then for a band like that. It's like, who are these guys? And actually a lot of, you know, there were even some bands that played with stars who thought that I interviewed, uh, Dennis D young from sticks and, you know, stars opened for sticks a lot in the mid seventies. And he said to me, it's like the first time he saw, you know, stars, it was in a parking lot of the venue. And they had this really nice big bus and they had, you know, cool threads on. And he said, it's like, who are these guys? You know, yeah. it's like he was kind of skeptical. It's like he 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 realized that they had Kiss's management and that was one of the reasons they were being pushed so hard. Um, but, I, you know, with all that said, I mean, I think their records are really, really strong. And, and their first two albums were produced by Jack Douglas, who also produced Cheap Trick's first album and Standing on the Edge, as well as, like, all the great early... Aerosmith records like Toys in the Attic and Draw the Line and Rocks. So, you know, Jack Douglas was responsible for the, you know, for producing the first two stars records. So they, 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 they were great sounding records with really good songs. Um, So they, they definitely had the chops and they had, you know, they had the support, but they were just neat. They were never able to make that leap over, you know, you know, the, sort of B or C level status.
0: Right. Yeah. The Jack Douglas thing. There you go. There's another thread tying all these bands together. So (laughs) it's really funny because it's like, it's just like when you're reading the book and it's just all these things. Well, he also, you know, yeah,
1: my big question going into the book was why did Jack Douglas never produce a Kiss record? He was like the architect of seventies hard rock and, he never worked with kiss and you know unfortunately he didn't he didn't um he declined to be interviewed for the book um so i had to ask other people and i had to do some research about it and you know it turns out that he actually was was asked to produce a kiss record after destroyer um you know when destroyer came out kiss were um were very kind of uncomfortable with it because it was a very, it was very, it was a very different record for them. It was heavily orchestrated, had a boy's choir, it had strings, it had a piano ballad with Beth and it kind of took them out of their comfort zone and they expressed this to, to their manager, Bill O'Coin. And Bill O'Coin actually, instead of, you know, asking Bob Ezrin who produced that record to produce the next kiss record, which turned out to be, um, rock and roll over. Um, he actually went to Jack Douglas, who was kind of a Bob Ezrin protege and he was a friend. And Jack said, nah, I can't do it. First of all, he had commitments to Aerosmith, but he also felt that, you know, he he was producing Aerosmith and he didn't want to go to their to the band that was really their competition for like the best biggest hard rock band of the 70s. So he felt uncomfortable taking that um taking that job. So he never worked with them, which I find pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Steven Tyler getting in Paul Stanley's way one more time, not sharing his damn producer.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah. I don't know. That, Maybe, you never know. You never know. <laughs>
0: No, I was going to say, I started kind of smiling when you mentioned Dennis D. Young from Styx, because pretty much anyone who knows me knows that I just absolutely hate Styx. They're like my kryptonite. And uh, Are you nodding because we're on the same page there?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say that my kryptonite. I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I, I appreciate what they do, but uh, never really bought their records. I like Renegade a lot. I think that's a really good song um but the proggiers that the the more proggy stuff in their catalog i just doesn't it I, I don't get it but you know a lot of people like them more power to them right i don't care yeah
0: <laughs> uh, i just kind of laughed i because i figured but any I'll of my let me,
1: just, let me just say this dennis D. young is one of the single funniest interviews I've ever conducted. And I've been doing this for many, many years. But he is a hoot and a half. Um and he has no filter. He will say what's on his mind. And, you know, I give him props for that. You know, he 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 was a he was a real trooper for that, for that interview.
0: Well maybe I'll see if I can get a hold of him and you know, I'll just be honest (laughs) with him. I'll say, look, I hate your band let's just talk about it. You know, do my podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I hate sticks. Click. <laughs> Would you like to come be on the podcast? I mean, I'll put that all out there. I don't, you know, it's just when you, when you mention that, I just, I know any of my friends that listen to this will just start laughing, but anyhow. Um, so yeah, you know, speaking of the interviews, I mean, you've interviewed a lot of people for this book, right? Like over a hundred or around a hundred or something like that.
1: No, I interviewed around 142 oh. and only 136 voices made it into the book. So there were some people I interviewed that just gave me information but I didn't quote them, but I quoted 136 people in the book. So yeah, a lot of interviews, a yeah. lot of.
0: Interviews. <laughs> How long did that take? I mean, well I guess um, probably the duration of writing the book, so that's just
1: And it was yeah, I mean, you know, I the book was completed over a period of like 18, 18 to 19 months, I guess. Oh, wow. And, um... I would
0: say that's quicker than I expected you to say, so...
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was a lot of heavy interviewing. Like, I sometimes I'd be doing three interviews a day, and then while I was writing, uh, the writing was the, you know, that was kind of the shorter period. Uh, but even while I was writing, I was conducting some interviews during that period. So, yeah, it was a lot of, a lot of talking on the phone, a lot of, um... Yeah, a lot of late night calls. And and there's there's also some cases where you end up talking with someone and you only need 45 minutes or a half hour. And they end up giving you three hours on the phone. I mean, that's what happened when I spoke with uh, Tim Collins, who was Aerosmith's manager uh, when they had their 80s revival. So he was their manager uh, when Joe Perry came back into the band. Right. And, you know, he they had a very bad break with Tim Collins. And, you know, I called him um, and I told him I only wanted 45 minutes. And, and he just like, he, he, he wouldn't stop talking. And he was so much voluminous stuff coming out of him and so much stuff I couldn't use because, right. you know, legally... I would have been in a lot of hot water had I gone with some of the stuff he told me, which I can't repeat here for obvious reasons, but um, he was one of those great interviews. And there were other people I spoke to like um, Jackie Fox from the Runaways, the bass player from the Runaways who had, she was friendly with, with all of these bands actually. And um, we were on the phone for like two and a half hours one night. And I only, you know, I used like four quotes from her in the book, but she was just, she was, just give me all this you know background stuff and she has so many vivid memories of that period that i just you know when you have a chance to talk to jackie fox for two and a half hours you're gonna take it yeah so
0: <laughs> sounds like you should have just been hosting like podcast and recording all of it you know what you I know mean? What? and you would have now, had a bunch of episodes
1: yeah you know now that now that i think about it i mean this is i was doing these interviews before zoom so in, in many cases, I was using this kind of antiquated, you know, phone pickup for my digital recorder. And the quality was was very iffy at some point. So, you know, had I been able to do this, what I'm doing right now, like on a Zoom call, yeah. I mean, because, you know, the clarity is just phenomenal now. And it, this has only been in the past, you know, year that that it's really taken off.
0: Yeah, I was kind of reluctant because I've just been using phone calls to do the podcast when I interview people, you know, and I actually just started using Zoom. This is the second time I've used it. The first time was with Chris Holmes from Wasp and mm-hmm. which I thought of all people for me to learn how to <laughs> use Zoom to interview. Like, you know, it was just kind of funny, but I'm, I'm a fan of Wasp and I was really excited to talk to him. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to figure out how to use Zoom, which really wasn't a problem. I used other similar apps and whatnot so figured it out pretty quick but but it's definitely nice it's definitely i mean just audio quality wise it's worked out a ton better um other than chris holmes because he lives in france so that was kind of there was some internet issues and whatnot but so it wasn't quite as good but but uh, yeah it does seem to be uh a little bit better than just a standard phone call and having to deal with people's signals cutting in and out and whatnot so oh yeah but a lot of people try to do the interviews while they're driving down the interstate and, you know, in between one place to the next. And
1: so um. I've had a few of those for the, for the book. I had a few of those calls. In fact, Tim Collins from, you know, the the ex manager of Aerosmith was one of those. And I actually got him on the phone when he was in the car and I got him for most of his drive. And then as he walked into his house, I, I had him on the phone and I had him on for another hour as he entered his house. So you know, it's, I, I, first of all, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to, you know, drive and talk on the phone or like be out and talk on the phone. I need to like sit and yeah. like focus on a phone call, but you right. know, we're powered to these people who can multitask. <laughs> right.
0: You know, it's funny because I knew that there's two people that I knew would be interviewed for the book because anything KISS related Scott Ian and Sebastian Bach are there. Like they probably before they were probably the first two people to know you were writing a book. They were probably knocking on your door (laughs) for the interview before you even knew you were writing the book.
1: Well, no, that (laughs) that wasn't quite the case. But I have to say this. I mean, Scott Ian, I contacted through his uh, the co-author of his memoir, who I kind of know, and he put me in contact with Scott, and Scott was immediately like, "Yes, I will do this." Um, and then I knew the editor who worked with Sebastian Bach on his book. And I, when I finally got you know to him, he was just tremendous as well because he, you know, he loves all these bands. And Scott Ian loves all these bands. Um, so they were great. Um, yeah. And it's funny because one of the elements of the book that I really strive to, to make, you know, interesting was was bringing in all these voices of of people or fans who have been influenced by these bands and you know have them talk about what what was it about these bands that drew them to them so people like scott ian and sebastian bach and kim thale from soundgarden and tracy guns and 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 Tammy down from uh, faster pussycat and Butch Walker, the producer, performer, and all these guys—they were like really excited to talk about these bands because um, they love them. I mean, Kiss especially was such a formative band for so many other artists. In fact, one of the the one of the my favorite quotes in the book is um, Dale Crover, who's the drummer for the Melvins. He um, he's a huge he was a huge Kiss fan, and he told me that you know seeing Kiss on the Paul Lynde Hollywood, sorry, the Paul Lynde Halloween special on ABC in like 1977 was his Beatles on Ed Sullivan, right? You know, moment because that was you know for 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 kids who were like 13 years old that was an extraordinary event seeing Kiss you know in primetime TV on ABC, you know performing and it was like what is this it was such a profound event for a lot of people um and so many of these, so many of the older performers like you know richie rano from stars and bunny carler from cheap trick um they all cite you know the beatles on ed sullivan as a moment that made them pick up a guitar so it's nice to mm-hmm. see um kiss being put in that kind of beatles slot for so many of these you know younger artists
0: right yeah i i kind of was half joking i guess about the sebastian bach and scotty Ian thing but you know they're just but not really because they're just really like enthusiastic anyone that
1: oh, totally. you know listens
0: totally. has you know read their books or seen interviews with them you know they're they're people that no matter how far along they've become and how accomplished they've become as musicians. They've never, they've never stopped being fans, you know, and their yeah. enthusiasm is really, you know, kind of contagious when you listen to Scott Ian talk about Kiss. You're kind of like, shit, I, you know, you're all hyped up and want to go pull out all your Kiss records and listen to them again. And
1: Look at his leg. He's got a huge <laughs> right. James Simmons tattoo on his leg, and, and Sebastian Bach told me that he you know he he did those kings of chaos tours yeah. um, you know with like kind of these all-star kind of that co- basically a cover band with like all these great musicians and he did he did one with he did one with steven tyler he did one with robin Zander. i think he did one with gene simmons if i'm not mistaken i could be wrong but you know, he knows all these guys, and he, and he loves these bands. Um, in fact, he was telling me, and I, I, I got to give a shout out to a, 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 my friends just have a book um, that reached the New York Times bestseller list this week, um, Nothing But a Good Time. I don't know if you know about this book. Oh, it's more yeah. of this of, of hair metal. Yep. And um, yeah, so um, I don't know where I was going with this story but um Sebastian yeah, so that Bach book and the out. Kings
0: of Chaos thing I think
1: but. yeah god but then um, nothing but a good time oh. book I
0: do want to pick that up that was next yes, on my it's list it's a great
1: it's a great book <clears throat> even though I don't really care about that music I'm not I'm not a huge hair metal fan That's, but um it's a really great book um Sebastian Bach um was telling me that the reason why he was fired from Skid Row had to do with Kiss because they were offered skid row were offered to uh open for kiss in jersey at an arena during the reunion tour and he wanted to do it but the other bands did the other band members did not want to do it so yeah. he apparently left a very nasty uh phone message for one of his bandmates and that was it
0: yeah. that was that was it
1: for him they were like F this guy, he's out of the band. I remember and he that said now he in his book. Kiss. Love of Kiss, love of is what it basically was the last, uh, the last straw.
0: Yeah, I do so. remember that being in the, uh, in Sebastian in his book. Mm-hmm. I think it was Rachel Boland. Maybe he called, left him a shitty message on his machine.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I thought the odd, the I don't want to say odd, but I guess I haven't really heard or read any interviews with him. Uh, Kim Thale, that one kind of caught me off guard. Like, I thought he was just like the quiet guy in Soundgarden that didn't talk, (laughs) you
1: know? Well, you see, and he was another guy who, um, I I went to him because I had read in an interview that he was a Kiss fan. Um, I knew that he loved Kiss, so I I had to get him. And it turned out, I mean, he's also a huge Aerosmith fan. He's a huge Cheap Trick fan. He said he wasn't, I mean, he knew who stars were, but he wasn't really much of a fan of theirs. But he was another guy who I had, you know, I wanted on the phone for 40 minutes and it ended up being two and a half hours because he was just like so articulate about this stuff and he would speak in these very dense paragraphs and he was just one of those guys who just was really thoughtful and, you know, had, had, was really opinionated and just had really great stories to tell. In fact, one of the stories he told me was that he was in, you know, he grew up in Chicago or outside Chicago, um, and one of his friends who ran one of the record stores nearby was this guy Zot, uh, Tom Zutout, who ended up signing Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue to major label deals. So he was like the record store buddy of Kim Thale. Hmm. It's like this kind of these weird like relationships. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Back then.
0: Yeah, Butch Walker yeah. was the other one I kind of didn't see coming. I mean, that just kind of came out of nowhere. And I'm a fan of his work. I mean, I was a huge Marvelous 3 fan, you know, and I yeah. still follow his solo records, although he tends to lose me every other record and whatever. But, um, but yeah, I was shocked to see his name come up. You know, I mean, there was some in there where I just didn't see him coming. But, I mean, hell, you yeah, interviewed 140 th- people. <laughs> How the hell was I going to see them all coming?
1: You know, one of my favorite stories is is um Butch Walker Butch Walker told me about seeing Ace Freely at this VH One honors show. VH One did his honors tribute to Kiss and some other bands. And he he was there playing with All American Rejects, I believe. Um, yeah. He
0: played bass with him, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and he was telling me the story. This is the this is the night that Ace Freely fell off the wagon very famously, and he was apparently very unpleasant to Butch and some of Butch's friends. But when the Kiss tribute band went on, so it was like Scott Ian and Rob Zombie and I think Slash yeah. and a bunch of other real heavy hitters were on stage doing, um, you know, Got a doing thunder, I think. Yeah. yeah. And Butch told me that he was sitting side stage and Ace Freely came and sat down next to him. So he's sitting with Ace Freely, who's watching some guy playing Ace Freely's part in a Kiss tribute. So it was pretty bizarre.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a trip, especially then to have him get all drunk and shitty with you too, on top of all that. <laughs> so, you know, the whole Stars thing, them kind of being the band that, you know, not everyone. I don't want to say no one. It's almost what I said, but you know, not as many people are going to be familiar with them that listen to this. And I'm sure you've done, you know, a bunch of other interviews surrounding the release of this book and everything. And do you find that you're you've been turning more people onto Stars? I mean, or at least is that the feedback you're getting? Like,
1: I think so. I mean, a lot of people I've spoken to for the book have said to me um, that either they'd never heard of Stars before, and this book kind of turned them on to stars. Um, or in a couple of cases, when I did some radio interviews with some older guys, even older than me, and I'm kind of old, um, they were all like, Oh, I remember stars. They were great. It was (laughs) like, it's great that you're kind of like taking them out of mothballs. And I kind of felt good about that. So yeah. So either people are being turned on to them or they're, um, you know, they're kind of rediscovering them. And I just want to correct something I said earlier when Butch Walker was actually watching kiss. So he, he was watching Tommy Thayer oh, okay. play Ace's part with Ace sitting next to him. Like I confused two moments from that show. I but, got yeah, you. So that was, uh, but yeah, so, um, and I've, and I've heard back from the guys and some of the guys in stars who were very happy that the book is out. I mean, they were kind of, you know, some of them were kind of, um, Uh, God, I don't know what the word is, but taken aback maybe by there's a lot of stuff in there that was kind of personal and, you know, all on the record, obviously. But, um, you know, to see that stuff in print all these years, years later was in in some cases kind of hurtful, but they were really happy with the book. They're they're kind of thrilled with the renewed um, attention that the band is getting. So, you know, that makes me feel good.
0: Well, maybe it'll spark a stars documentary, you know? I mean, hey, it worked for Anvil. It gave them, you know, I think their numbers went up after that.
1: Stars are much better than Anvil. Yeah,
0: Yeah, no, they are. (laughs) I don't even think that's a matter of opinion, to be honest with you. (laughs) Somebody might argue with us, but... So what, uh... And I'm sure everybody's probably asking you this question. It kind of seems like the generic go-to, but I guess just being a, a fan of all the bands... um. I guess I kind of want to know, like, what's... I think you already said Cheap Trick's your favorite all-time band, so I'm sure that that answers my first question if I was to ask, you know, which band out of all four of them is your favorite? I guess unless I was going to get too crazy here and ask you to rank them or something, but (laughs) I don't know if we need to go that deep unless you feel like volunteering that. Um... No,
1: I will tell you this. I've seen Cheap Trick probably 50, 51 times, so... Yeah, that 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 they've definitely attained that that they they attain that status of my you know most most viewed bands. Yeah, uh, yeah, live I see them whenever I can.
0: Well, they're always great live, and I mean, there I just saw them a couple of years ago. I think was the most recent. I think I saw them. Yeah, maybe it was 2018. Might have been the last time I saw them, if I'm remembering correctly but I'm not too far off either way, mm-hmm. and they were still great. I mean, it was really funny because they're just still just, you know, and they're a genuine live rock and roll band. It is what it is, you know, and I even saw them for the first time train wreck a song. I mean, well, first time I've seen them train wreck a song. I'm not going to say it was the first time they ever train wrecked a song, but it was, was, the song? it was He's a Whore, I thought. and it just cracked me up because I was like, Man, you guys have been playing this song since your first fucking record. How did you do? And the funny thing was, they train wrecked it like three times in a row before they got it right. They had to keep stopping and starting over.
1: You know, it's funny because I've I've seen them fifty-one times, and you know, I've seen a couple of lame shows where they weren't they they definitely had off nights. They weren't giving their all. You know, Robin was having problems hitting the notes and stuff. Yeah. Those are few and far between. There were only maybe two or three shows that I've ever seen like that. I've never seen them completely flub a song like that. So that you are you know, that's you should you should take it as a badge of honor. I was gonna that's say fun.
0: maybe that's, I am one of the first. I don't you know. You can dine out on
1: that one. You know I thought it that's was pretty awesome. funny. I would love to see that show. But I'll tell you they this, were great one,
0: otherwise though.
1: Yeah. One of the most memorable shows I saw of them um, was at a, a sit-down venue on Long Island. Um, and, you know, they were on stage, a very small stage, but everyone was sitting down. And at one point they were doing a song off of, I believe it was off of um, Woke Up With a Monster, one of the slower songs, one of the more ballady things. And and Robin wanted to sit down and, he and he, they hadn't played this song in forever and they got a special request to do it. So Robin wasn't that familiar with the word. So he, he actually had it written down and he didn't have his reading glasses so he, in the middle of the show he asks the audience essentially does anybody have reading glasses so someone passed him a pair of reading glasses he put them on he's like oh it's close enough it's nearly nearly my prescription <laughs> and he proceeded to sing this song while sitting down you know dedicating this love song to a couple who were in the audience and it was an incredibly sweet kind of off the cuff moment that really you know Really endeared me to them. I mean, I've always loved them, but I thought that was such a genuine, like, human moment for them.
0: Right. Yeah. I go outside their comfort zone and know that they might just, you know, completely shit the bed, <laughs> but they yeah. still went ahead and did it just to meet a request. I mean, yeah, that's pretty good. What
1: were your other questions? You wanted to ask me some stuff about? Oh yeah. Songs or? Yeah,
0: I was going to go that generic route of saying, you know, favorite <laughs> albums, favorite songs, kind of from each band.
1: I, I can tell you all. Okay, so Cheap Trick. Uh, favorite album heaven tonight favorite song surrender uh aerosmith favorite album rocks favorite song sweet emotion i think uh sometimes it's that sometimes it's um sick as a dog um kiss favorite album love gun favorite song is also from that album shock me i i it's funny cuz that that that's that's kind of like a way out choice because it's an Ace Freely song,
0: right? Not I know a lot of people don't of like Love me, Gun too,
1: but I, I love the Love Gun album and I, and I think that song is is their best song. Um, and Stars, uh, my favorite song is Cherry Baby, which was kind of their biggest you know minor hit. Um, favorite album is is kind of a tie between Violation and the third record called Attention Shoppers. Attention Shoppers is kind of a weird one because the band really disliked that record because they went into that record um, being told by both their manager and by Capitol Records, their label, that they had to come up with hits. They had to write hits. They had to write hits like Cherry Baby. So what they did was they wrote an album of pop songs and you know they weren't kind of the hard rockin' songs that maybe their audience or their fans were, you know, coming to expect from them. But I think some of the songs are, are their best songs. Um, They also produce it themselves. They didn't have Jack Douglas to produce that record. So they're not happy. The band members themselves aren't happy with how they produce that record. So it's kind of a controversial record in the, in the stars catalog, but I, I think it's great. Hmm.
0: Yeah. That one I actually didn't listen to. I, you know, I checked out, um, I guess the first two and then uh, Coliseum rock.
1: Yeah, the, those the first yeah those three are really of a piece. I mean, I think Coliseum Rock their last record. Some of the the songs aren't as strong as maybe they could be, um, yeah. but but the songwriting on a, Attention Shoppers I think is is some of their best, and it's a very poppy record. So, depending on you know if you have a stomach for that, it's actually their their most cheap, tricky kind of Beatlesy record. Right. If that if that's a you know if that means anything.
0: Yeah. Well, I love the Beatles and I love Cheap Trick, so I mean, I'm you know, you pretty much sold me on it. So, (laughs) well, hey, Doug, man, I don't want to keep you too long, so I think we've got some pretty good conversation and everything going, and I think, uh, I think if that conversation didn't sell everybody on the book, I don't know what will, because that was just, uh, you know, (laughs) just a little little glimpse into everything that's in there, so. I definitely appreciate you hanging out and chatting for a little bit, and I appreciate you writing the book because it just, like I said before, it you know, it's just a unique story. I mean, there's there's books on Aerosmith, several of them, several on Kiss, if not several dozen. Um, I haven't really read much on Cheap Trick, you know, and there's probably nothing out there on Stars other than this, and to actually. Come up with this unique idea of, you know, tying all their stories together. Well, I mean, the stories kind of tie themselves together, but you're telling it. And I mean, that was really, no, no, I don't know. No one else could have thought of that. I don't think. I mean, it was, you know, and it's just a great ride listening to. I mean, like I said, I listened to the audiobook and I already want to either listen to it again or pick up a copy and sit down and actually read it so that I, you know, digest it all a little bit more and, you know, remember it all a little bit better than I do right now. (laughs) So,
1: well, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to hear that response because that's why I did it. I mean, I, I, I thought that there was a story that was never told and, um, I wanted to get it out there and, you know, perhaps, you know, people start, you know, looking at these bands differently and in a, in a, in a positive way. And, um, you know, give a lot of love to cheap trick and stars, especially. So, uh, I'm glad I, in your, in your words, I'm glad I succeeded. So thanks. Thanks for having me on. There you
0: go. Yeah, no problem, man. I guess there was one more question I wanted to ask. I almost just jumped right to the end (laughs) and let you go. Uh, is there going to be a follow up book? I mean, I know you've written for years now, like, you know, one thing I kind of forgot to mention at the beginning was your past, and everything because you were an editor at spin magazine i believe for many years and had a lot of roles like
1: that and um so yeah i um you know i'm not sure there'll be a sequel to this book uh i think i told the story i want to tell i do have other book ideas that are kind of percolating right now and and i'm going to land on one i think fairly soon um not sure it might even be it might not even be music related but but i'm we'll see. Um, but no, I'm always going to write about music and I, you know, I love music, but I think, I think this book was kind of like a one and done kind of thing for me. Right. Cause it was so, it's such a unique idea with these four particular bands. It's kind of hard to repeat it without kind of seeming that you're trying to put things together that maybe aren't organically connected.
0: Right. So. Yeah. And you came pretty current to the every all the bands stories and everything i mean i think the most of their story is in the past so <laughs> you know there's not going to be too much new coming out of out of these bands to where there's probably going to be too much more to write about you never know i don't
1: know about that i <laughs> mean because you know it's it's funny because before the pandemic all four of these bands were touring or about to tour you know you had kiss yeah. doing their end of the road tour you had you had um Uh, Aerosmith doing their Vegas residency. You had Cheap Trick, you know, performing. I think they were supposed to go out with uh, Rod Stewart uh, the summer before the pandemic. And then Stars were about to go on tour with Angel, so another band from the 70s. So these bands are all active. Cheap Trick have a new record out. I mean, sure, there's not going to be – there probably won't be more – connections between these bands forthcoming, but, you know, I'm just, I'm just loving that they're all still active and they're all, you know, they're all 70 years old. So God bless them.
0: Absolutely. Well, Hey, Doug, you take care. And I appreciate you being on the show and hopefully we'll have a, a reason to talk again sometime in the future.
1: I'd be glad to do it. Thanks. All right. Thank you.
0: All right. The name of the book, they just seem a little weird not to be confused with they just seem a little bit weird go out pick it up order order it on amazon download the audible version even though i kept stressing that i think it's better to sit down and read this one because it is just full of so much information so thank you again to doug broad for being on the show and thank you for tuning in to another episode of a-sides